I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at you're listening to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, here with producers Daniela Ali. Hello. And Justine Paradise. Hey. Yoo-hoo. <laughs> Yoo-hoo is the appropriate response in all circumstances. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very professional. <laughs> oh, and this is my baby in the bathroom. <laughs> the hilarious thing in question here is a turkey baster, which he is playing with in the water. Oh, my God. <laughs> How old is Hugo? He is he's 15 months now. I think that we should just have, like, a hard pivot today on the show to just, like, two hours of, like, rude noises and bath time fun instead of this. <laughs> Hugo does actually indeed love water. That is, that is his first word. Uh, but he fell in a pond last week uh, and thought it was hilarious, despite the fact of being totally soaked and cold. Oh my god! Well, you know, you could actually start Hugo on swim lessons right now. Have you have you guys started him yet? Or is that true? Yeah, the American Association of Pediatrics just updated the recommendations, saying that you can start kids as early as one year old in swim lessons. Oh they used to say age four, but I mean, others say even earlier. Like you know, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist in New Guinea in the 1930s, observed like infants learning to walk and swim super early. So I mean, yeah, in all of this, Justine and I have been thinking about uh, how people form relationships to water and how that happens over time 
and just how people learn to swim. Yeah, for me, this actually started a few months ago when I was home visiting my family. I grew up on Nantucket, which is an island off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And I brought my recorder because I'll just do that just for fun, like record conversations with people I love and get their voices. Yeah, you know, and (laughs) accost people on the street. Um, (laughs) And this time I was recording a conversation with my mom. Her name's Jenny. Um, And I wanted to talk with her about swimming because it has been this constant in her life for her since she was a kid. I don't know. I just needed it. Um, It's part of my identity. I love swimming. She swam competitively in college. She coached the high school swim team. She does open water swims. And at one point, you were talking about ducking waves. So when a wave is about to break, you dodge it by diving under it. So ducking the waves um, when you're a little kid... It's the first thing you you want to learn how to do. You're afraid of them. You've been afraid of them crashing on you. And they're, it's just intimidating. So sometimes in, well, in Nantucket, it can be a very light, easygoing, frothy wash, a wave washing over you. And, you, and if you try to catch it, it doesn't even go. You can't catch it because it's too weak. And then, the, then there are other waves that are just incredibly powerful. And you don't really know when you first get in whether you're which kind of surf you're getting into. Um, but the thing I really want to tell you about is when it goes wrong, because when you don't time it right, you can get boiled, which is a really freaky experience. It's when the wave kind of catches you and pushes you under and kind of holds you down. They get hold of your feet. Or something, and you know, suddenly they're dragging you up to shore, and you're in a, you know, in this, it's like a combustion almost. And because you haven't prepared to be caught underwater, you haven't taken a deep breath, and you're being tossed around. You don't know which way is up. Sometimes you you can end up being pressed against the sand, so you can end up kind of scraped up. Honestly, I actually think that this might be what drowning feels like. So I remember getting boiled a bunch as a kid. And when I'd finally get out, I could be really freaked out. But the thing is, I lived on an island where beaches were public. Access was free. You didn't even have to pay to park. So you could go again and again. And if something scary happened, you could, like, take a break and go back in when the surf was calmer and then return when you were ready. But I can imagine if you only went once a year or something, your last memory would be kind of a scary one. So you wouldn't be able to develop that kind of natural, slow relationship with the water. And you never get to develop a sort of sense of play in those waves. Um... So one more thing about my mom. A couple years ago, she started teaching learn to swim classes for adults. I get these people that have had this dream their whole life to to swim. They got somehow, it just eluded them. I, I had one lady who's, whose siblings all, she's from Jamaica, and all of her siblings knew how to swim. And for some reason, she didn't learn. And she, I think it was because there was some sort of fear event that happened at one, one point when she was a child. And so... I was working with her, and and I started to get her to just play. Like, I said, why don't you just, you know, go down and float underwater and blow bubbles and just kind of have fun and watch watch the bubbles and pretend you're a kid. And uh, it was re- it's really fun to kind of re- realize that's how or understand how I learned to swim and how children learn to swim. And how hard it is to do that when you're older. (laughs) 
This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Swimming is something that is more or less a part of the human experience, depending on who you are, where you are, and when you're alive in history. Today, producers Justine Paradise and Daniela Ali have two stories that explore our relationship with the water, about why and how people do or don't learn to swim. For me, water is magical. Um, I'm, I'm definitely in love with the ocean. This is Ebony Rosemond. My husband and I have a ritual where it's something that I witnessed for the first time when I was living in Brazil. At the stroke of midnight, everyone rushes into the water and there's all these fireworks and then everybody just starts partying in the water. So at midnight on New Year's, we always run into the water. And it, it's always a, um, a natural body of water. So Ebony loves the water, and her daughter actually started swimming when she was just three years old. She joined the swim team, and now her daughter's a strong, competitive swimmer. They live in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a historically black county. It's the wealthiest African-American county in the country. So for us, uh, on a local level, we see lots of black swimmers here in Prince George's County. And my daughter's team, the Teresa Banks Swim Club, which is historically an African-American swim club, was the champion of the league for like eight years in a row. So as Ebony's daughter got better and better, when she was 11, she was the fastest 11-year-old in the country in the 50 free, they started going to competitions further afield. And we're just, you know, proud swim parents. We didn't really know that much about the sport. We honestly didn't really understand how good she was. But we started to notice that we were the only African-American family at the meets she was going to. Like, where are all of the other little black swimmers? Where are the black parents? So on the way home from a meet, my daughter Googled on my phone, black kids swim. And Google returned nothing but negative results. It's a crazy statistic. African-American children are five times more likely to drown than other children. I'm Olympic medalist. Uh, we found the USA Swimming statistic that said at that time that African-Americans, 70 percent of African-Americans lacked basic swim skills. The, the horrific story where I think five or six kids in Louisiana drowned because they were swimming in open water and they were trying to save one another and one after another they just drowned. These stories and statistics are real, but they also reinforce a stereotype that black kids don't know how to swim. And then there was the case of the 2016 Red Cross poster illustrating pool safety. The poster depicts behavior that is cool and not cool. Here's Larry Wilmore talking about it on his late night show. Okay, let's see what we've got here. Uh, okay, cool, all right, white dad playing with his baby in the water. Not cool, black girl shoving a, a white girl into the pool. Uh, hey, hey, Quanice from the projects, uh, you leave sweet little Madison alone, please. Uh, Okay, what else? Uh, cool white girl standing at the diving board. Not cool. Black boy diving off the diving board? You know they put diving boards at pools for diving, right? What is he, diving too blackly? Good Lord. There are positive examples of elite black swimmers, like Olympians Maritza McClendon, Leah Neal, and Simone Manuel, who was the first black individual gold medalist in 2016. 
But even at the Olympics, you can catch a glimpse of a murky history. For instance, a three-time Olympic medalist Colin Jones almost drowned when he was five years old, and his mother couldn't help because she didn't know how to swim either. So, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of these myths and stereotypes that have developed. Um, Like, one of them was that the slave trade was so horrendous that it created this psychological scar on African Americans that was passed down through generations that discouraged them from, from swimming. This is Kevin Dawson. He is a surfer, sailor, freediver, and a swimmer. Kevin's also a historian. I am a historian of the African diaspora and Atlantic history at the University of California, Merced. As he started studying history, Kevin found firsthand accounts that the stereotype that Black people can't swim is a recent invention. Not all that long ago, at least relative to the grand sweep of history, in some parts of the world, the reverse was true. Kevin studied observations of coastal peoples in sub-Saharan Africa, from Senegal to Angola, and communities in the interior as Europeans traveled up rivers into what's now Mali and the Congo River Basin. These are mostly first-hand European accounts from ship logs and diaries starting in the 15th century. The accounts of Africans diving into rivers um, and into the ocean to fight crocodiles, Um, and sharks with knives, or to fight hippopotamuses with spears. He also found descriptions of African peoples freediving. To great depths, to 60, 80, 100 feet deep, um, which Europeans were, were not able to do at that time. Meanwhile, the colonizers, the Europeans, largely did not share these fundamental swim skills they were basically still doing the doggy paddle. Kevin points to a few reasons for this, a belief that swimming can spread disease, and some Catholic officials wrote that because people swam nude, swimming was immoral. So they they go to Africa and they see Africans doing versions of the crawl or, or the freestyle, and they're really surprised because they instantly recognized that it was a much faster, much, much stronger stroke um, that allowed the Africans to swim longer um, and faster than they ever could. And, and, and that's really, I mean, it, it, to, to kind of wrap their sense around Africans' ability to swim and their own inabilities to swim, they would say, well, you know, swimming is animalistic. And this is proof that Africans are animalistic or bestial. But of course, while these skills might have been seen as animalistic, they were still valuable. The Spanish used slaves for pearl diving. And later in the Caribbean, slaves were used for salvaging gold off shipwrecks, sometimes worth billions of dollars in today's economy. But there's an idea that plantation owners in the American South stopped enslaved people from swimming. And Kevin's research suggests that wasn't actually too common. Enslavers saw swimming as a way of preserving their property, right, by, by preventing slaves from drowning. What really stopped African Americans from swimming was what happened after slavery. You, you basically have two things going on. First, you have the rise of um, white, white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. And so... As black people began to demand political rights during Reconstruction and then after Reconstruction, um, you had this rise of lynchings, um, which is kind of spectacle murder of black people. And 
lynched bodies were oftentimes discarded in waterways, and they were discarded in waterways where African Ameri- that African Americans were using um, in the rivers and lakes that, that black people were swimming in. Perhaps the most well-known example was Emmett Till, who was 14 years old when he was brutally murdered after he'd been accused of flirting with a white woman. His body was dumped in the Tallahatchie River and pulled out three days later. Oftentimes, uh, throughout the South, black people were congregating uh, along and under uh, the railroad trestles that spanned rivers. And so these railroad trestles became, if you will, in kind of contested spaces. And so black people had been jumping off of them, diving off of them. And so as white Southerners were forcing black people off of these beaches, um, they began to, to lynch to hang um, black people from these bridges. And these bridges then became known as lynching bridges. There's a legacy of exclusion and fear um, surrounding the swimming pool in America. This is Ebony Rosemond again. During segregation and into integration, we were refused entrance into safe places to swim, whether that was a pool funded by their own tax money or a beachfront. And as beaches started to become segregated by race... What white Americans did not want to do was to to, to have white women, semi-nude white women, to be in the same space as semi-nude black men. The incident that sparked the 1919 race riot of Chicago was a black teenager on an inner tube inadvertently floated from a black beach onto a white beach and a white mob then pelted him with um, bricks and stones and he ended up drowning. Um, and that kicked off the, that 1919 race riot. Out of a desire to protect their children, um, older African-Americans prevented their children from going to these dangerous places. But of course, everyone loves the water. Everyone wants to swim, especially when it's hot. Um, So children would find other places to swim, drainage ditches, um, unmonitored open water. So then you have the a growing drowning rate in the African-American community, which increased the fear. So whether it's out of fear of drowning, out of fear of your child drowning, or out of fear of being harassed, um, black people have, in in some populations uh, more than others, have avoided the water. Ebony wanted to do something to change that. So she started an organization rooted from the phrase her daughter had Googled after a swim meet, Black Kids Swim. It's a nonprofit with the mission of getting more kids involved in competitive swimming. They connect kids with summer swim teams, facilitate scholarships, and even design their own hair care products specifically designed for tight curl patterns seen in a lot of black hair. But to achieve their goal of getting more kids involved in competitive swimming, Ebony and Black Kids Swim could not ignore history. They also want to know, why am I afraid of swimming? Why did my parents keep me out of the pool? Why aren't there more swimmers? You have to talk about history to reroute it. So Black Kids Swim started including listening sessions and workshops in their programming with the parents and community in Prince George's County and Washington, D.C. The idea was to bring into the open this historical trauma or collective memory, which sometimes is actually not just a memory. Actually, here in Prince George's County, 
there was an incident with a, a, and it's not unique, but a neighborhood pool, a community association that was denying membership to African-American families. And of course the kids wanted to go anyway. So they said, you know, with, with the typical courage of a child, well, I'm going anyway. And their father said, fool, don't you go to that pool. They'll drown you. And that was a, simply a father trying to protect his child from a dangerous or at the very least embarrassing situation. Yeah. And I think both of us are really sort of struck by this, um, that you've built kind of into your, your programming, like even though it's about competitive swimming and that's your mission, that like you're creating these spaces for people to share stories in, in a public but safe forum. Like, is it is it cathartic for people? Like, what do you observe like in terms of like, the emotion of the room? Yes, it's cathartic. You just see the body language change the and the emotions in the room sway from shock over the statistics in the lack of participation and then to very somber when people start to share specific stories with names and dates and specific locations. Uh, We did a workshop like this in Washington DC a few months ago and a woman shared how she watched her husband drown um, on a family vacation. And after that, of course, she learned how to swim. She made sure her children learned how to swim. It's very cathartic. It's very healing for a person to be able to share that story, to receive love from the community and receive encouragement. And I'm sure that after she shared her story and more importantly, shared how she decided to grow from that horrific incident, it strengthened other people in the audience to do the same. I don't know that now they have a shared experience and then towards the end of the presentation when we begin to um highlight the successful elite black swimmers in the sport whether they're american african or caribbean it's a dead hate dead hate i can't begin to tell you what this means for the sport of swimming in the united states then the pride begins to come out and and we encourage them that of course they can do this too and the kids begin to get excited There are also national efforts from groups like the YMCA, the CDC, and the Red Cross to raise pool safety awareness and improve access to swim lessons in areas where drowning rates are above average. But that's different from what Black Kids Swim is doing, giving new swimmers a reason to be proud and building a community. This spring, Black Kids Swim is running their first ever skills camp. And this year was a 17th annual National Black Heritage Championship swim meet in Cary, North Carolina, which Ebony calls the family reunion of the black swim community. And Kevin Dawson, the historian and freediver, he's also involved in getting black kids comfortable in the water. He talks to kids and parents to dispel these historical myths. And last year, he actually helped 100 kids learn to surf in California. So we're happy to say that just three years after the founding of Black Kids Swim, If you Google Black Kids Swim now, you'll see only positive stories, or definitely in the majority, positive stories. Interviews, um, highlights of young Black swimmers who are doing awesome things in and out of the pool. So 
uh, we're just proud that um, in our own little way, we have been able to make a real difference in what people think when they hear the words or enter the words into a search engine, Black Kids Swim. Getting kids access to swim lessons is an obvious way to prevent drowning. But what if you never learned to swim as a kid? After the break, a personal story about what it takes to learn something that everybody else takes for granted. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. El micrófono No es para tocar This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. This hour we've been hearing stories about learning how to swim. And I'm here with producer Justine Paradise. Well, actually, we're not we're not here together. But Justine, where are you? I'm out. I'm at home on Nantucket Island right now, sitting in a truck on a, on a windy island. Um, and I am sitting next to a young man who is uh, in the tub, misbehaving. <laughs> so, Justine, do you remember learning how to swim? I barely. I remember. So when I was growing up, my mom would bring me to the beach as like a baby. And she told me I ate quite a lot of sand. Um, and then I think I learned in the pool, but really just visions, like little snatches of, of images. I remember not not much of the details. Where did you learn to swim? My first memory of swimming, swimming, I remember the first time I swam without those little arm inflatable swimmy things. I guess what we have in common here, though, is that we both learned when we were kids. 
Right. And so, and so next we're going to hear a story from producer Danielle Ali, who did not learn as a kid and who has had to learn as an adult. Point your toes. Now fast flutter kicks. That's very good. How does it feel today? Uh, I feel a little bit more out of breath than normal. But, whew. Yeah. I am a bad swimmer. Until about a year ago, before I started taking lessons, the doggy paddle was my strongest stroke. I could tread water just fine, but in open water, even in the deep end of the pool, I didn't feel safe, and I probably wasn't. I had taken lessons when I was a kid, but swimming was just never a family affair. Uh, soy Marta Lucia Otero, soy Colombiana. This is my mom. I called her because one thing I learned while we were reporting this story is that if your parent can't swim, it's likely that you won't know how to swim either. Only 13% of kids with non-swimming parents learn how, and neither of my parents really knew. They both grew up in the southwest of Colombia in the middle of the mountains. My mom didn't live near a river, and the ocean is not a short drive away. Generalmente no tuve experiencias positivas con la natación. Growing up, she and her three sisters would cool off in a shallow part of a nearby brook in her hometown, and they taught themselves to float or basically not drown. Solamente era o flotábamos o nos hundíamos. But even though she got a little bit of informal instruction at school, the pool she and her classmates were using did not have water treatment yet. So parents were concerned about their kids' health, and the classes stopped. Swimming just wasn't important, she says. Not a lot of people did it. And in fact, none of her 31 classmates knew how to swim. So when I told my mom that I was going to start taking swim lessons, she said, Que bueno, mija. That'll be good in case something bad happens. You'll have a better chance of surviving. My dad, on the other hand, just thought it'd be a good thing to do. Mi nombre es Ever Vidal. He had swim classes in school, too, but... Al principio del año a uno le decían clases de natación y ya cuando veían que nadie se ahogaba, entonces se asumía que todo el mundo sabía nadar y que todo el mundo era permitido lanzarse a la piscina. He says the teachers saw nobody had drowned, so they assumed everyone could swim, and there wasn't a swim test or anything like that. My dad did have fun around the water, though. His family would take picnics by the river. He and his classmates would sneak in their bikes to the school pool, race around, and knock each other in. But he didn't really learn to swim. According to the Red Cross, knowing how to swim means you can get into the water, take a breath, change positions, float, and swim about 25 yards to get out of the water safely. In his swim class, the doggy paddle was all the rage and what most kids knew how to do. He says, I don't understand why the doggy paddle was never brought to the Olympics. Growing up, whenever we'd make it out to the ocean, my parents always stayed very close to the beach. Or when we'd go snorkeling, they'd just stay on the boat, waving at us. My mom said she was too nervous to be in water where she couldn't touch the bottom. 
So the association I saw to water from my parents was mostly hesitation, caution, and fear. And that's something I've carried forward, because whenever I went to pool parties, I'd stay in the shallow end, watching other people have fun. About two years ago, my husband and I were in Colombia on the Atlantic coast, on vacation with my family. And I decided I was going to give swimming a shot. He and I were in a pool, in the shallow end, and I wanted to know how to freestyle. So I asked him to show me how it was done, because really, it could not be that hard. So he shows me a few strokes. He says, just move your arms this way, in and out. And I start right away because I know I've got this and I do not need more of a tutorial. So I put my head in the water and I'm trying to move my right arm and then my left arm and then trying to get a breath, but nothing is making sense. And I just come up gasping for air. I'm kind of wondering how anyone is able to do this. One reason I've been told that people swim is because of the joy it gives them. And yeah, the water can be fun, even if you can't freestyle. But if you grow up and never learn how to swim, that joy is tempered by something else. Fear of getting in over your head or just embarrassing yourself, staying back when everyone else is having fun. The longer you wait, the harder it is to jump in. My mom's turning 50 this year. She tells me she wants to learn to swim, that she wants to take classes, but she's worried she'll be the only adult who doesn't know how. Those kinds of feelings can push people further away, but for others, it's what brings them to the pool for the first time as adults. I just wanted swimming to make sense. I wanted what I saw other people had in the water, a sense of freedom. I think this year alone, there's been about just a little over 60 adults that have come through the program, which is absolutely incredible. This is Ari Marks, my swim coach. She teaches at the Upper Valley Aquatic Center, where I've been taking swim lessons every winter and spring for the past two years. Do you think the fear is the same that children and adults have of the water? Like, um, No, I think it could be. But from what I've noticed with children, it's a little bit of a sensory thing. They don't want to get the water in their nose. They don't like how it feels. I mean, who likes water in their nose? It's like soda going to your brain. But with adults, I think there is more of a fear piece there. And I want them to not be fearful in the water because swimming is just such an amazing sport. You know, you can do it at any age. Like fear of drowning? Like Fear of drowning, for sure. Um, and just not being comfortable, not in control. You know, I felt like a fish out of water, literally. This is Sanjay Garg. He and his wife Sujatha were in my class, learning to swim together. I was swimming so close to the wall at the, in the beginning, I would often scrape my, my fingers <laughs> or, or my toes. And, and those concrete walls, they, they leave a nasty bruise on you. Yeah, Not very often, but it's happened, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sanjay and Sujatha are an interesting example because although they never learned to swim as kids, their daughters did. They even swam competitively. And now that their kids are grown, Sujatha and Sanjay are in their 50s, and they're learning how to swim together. It was definitely Sujatha's idea. She convinced him to sign up. Well, I wouldn't say convinced. I maybe say uh, <laughs> twisted my arm enough. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things. We, we take vacations on the beach, and not knowing how to swim uh, really 
somewhat restricts our enjoyment of the of the ocean. Sanjay grew up in New Delhi, where he says pools were inaccessible or expensive. And he says his first goal is to lose that fear of the water. We, early on, and uh, we did some practice diving just from the edge of the pool, getting a few feet under the surface of the water. That was quite amazing, you know. You get a totally different view. You know, of course, the swimming pool is totally clear. You can see to the other end of it and underwater. It's just, you know, even though I didn't spend much time, I was just, <laughs> all my thought was to just get back up. But yeah, just a few seconds under there, that was, that was quite fun. Our swim lessons are structured to start slow, and that's the same for adults or kids. We begin with exercises that get you comfortable in the water. Back floats, deep water bobs, kicking, taking breaths, and then moved on to other exercises. But something I did not anticipate when I signed up for lessons is how cerebral this entire learning process is. A lot of us don't really have to think twice about all the little movements that make up taking a step or throwing a ball. But in swimming, like take freestyle, there's so much. There's knowing how to breathe. Take a breath. Getting comfortable turning your head. Breathe. Turn head right to the right and also the left. Breathe. Turn head left. Getting your elbow high enough and your hand not too stiff or too loose as it enters the water. Elbow high. Stay relaxed. And you're also trying to make the stroke powerful. Kick from hips with the right kicking motion. And the cherry on top of all of this is that you have to try to stay relaxed in the water while also making sure each of these movements actually happens. like a line going through our body. Shoulders and hips and kick all need to match up, but your head stays looking up at the ceiling. So almost like if I was talking to Keith and I was just rolling back and forth like this and just keep staring at you. Like an owl. Like an owl, ooh. Okay. So much of this learning process is hard. I don't feel like a kid frolicking and giggling in the water. I feel frustrated because the movements don't click. I'm tired after just 25 yards. I feel scared when I get breathless at the end of a lap. The fact of the matter is, you're just bad for quite some time. And a lot of the time, swimming isn't that fun. It's more of a grind. I see kids in pools and lakes at the beach. And even after two years of lessons, it still doesn't feel like I have what they've learned so easily. But every now and again, you get this little glimpse of what it might be like to feel natural, to feel like a swimmer. Last year, Ari made us do an exercise. We had to do the backstroke while balancing a rubber duck on our foreheads. Rotate, eyes to the ceiling. I wasn't doing it perfectly. My backstroke wasn't in a straight line, and maybe my kick came more from my knees than my hips. Eyes to the ceiling, rotate, hips in a line. Breathe. But I felt this burgeoning sense of power and delight as I swam. My neck muscles weren't too tight, my breathing was controlled, and I was just enjoying the water for a moment. 
And through those 50 yards in the pool, I wasn't learning to swim. I wasn't thinking about how to move each part of my body. I wasn't a collection of parts jerking through the deep end. I was just a rubber duck floating along at home in the water. Justine Paradise, Daniela Ali, and Taylor Quimby, with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Flip Turn Strategies. Special thanks to Dr. Angela Beal from the Red Cross. You can find links to Kevin Dawson's research or Ebony's work at our website, outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Ikamashu Aoi. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.